40 Days in the Desert is a Kundalini Pilgrim production, hosted by Sarit Maor Simrit. This podcast is part of my research and preparation for a journey of 40 days in the deserts of the Middle East, exploring the 40 days stories of the prophets of the religions that grew on this land and the yogic wisdom of 40 days practices. The intention is to create a new context for these 40 days stories. So I'm meeting people that have experience and wisdom in areas that are related to the vision of this journey. You're welcome to join me as I deeply listen to them. I still know how to move to action because I'm listening. And if I listen and I hear something different, I will change course. But I need to make space in my life to keep listening to what is to my own personal guidance and to follow that. So I can, if I'm too busy with my mind and my overworked patterns, I won't be able to listen. So I'm, I'm, I'm constantly playing with that balance every day. I'm uh, here meeting Rina Kedem at her home at Kibbutz Lotan in the Arava, in the south of the Arava. On the way here, I was trying to think, how would I introduce you? So maybe it's best if you introduce yourself. What is it that you do? I work in the field of environmental cooperation with Palestinians, Israelis, and Jordanians for the past 17 years. The title of my profession or my work title is a department manager at the Dead Sea and Arava Science Center at the Arava Institute. And the regional, and I manage the regional relations on behalf of the Elot Regional Council. I'm also a freelancer, but if you ask me, like the title would be a, a environmental peace entrepreneur, is what I call it in a sentence. That's beautiful. The the three of them, <laughs> <laughs> environmental peace entrepreneur. When I say what I do, I explain that I'm part of a movement. I belong to a movement of environmental cooperation, environmental peace work. Um, there are many of us. It's an international movement that recognizes the, um, the beauty between working, the necessity and the beauty of working on environmental needs and bringing people together in conflict. If we look at a map and we just see, we look and we try to look at, and we... identify the natural resources that, for example, Israel, Jordan, and Palestine share, we see that we share the most basic needs. I share the same groundwater here in Lotan with my Jordanian neighbors. The way we treat our water, the way we use or overuse our groundwater has an immediate effect on each other. The same goes for Palestinians and Israelis and the mountain aquifer. We share... the Sea of the Galilee, we share the attributes that feed into the Sea of the Galilee. We share the Dead Sea, we share the Red Sea. Obviously, air pollution doesn't care where Jordan starts and Israel ends and vice versa. So when we look at those, um, at those environmental needs, it, it becomes very obvious that if we want to learn to survive on this land with harsh 
extreme conditions, especially here in the south, it's a hyper-arid zone, hyper-arid desert, then we understand that if we want to live here, we need to learn how to manage our resources together, and we have to develop the responsibility and to learn how to do that. So on one hand, it's, it's just a pure matter of survival, for giving our children the opportunity to live on this land in a healthy way. On the other hand, the environmental cooperation is about bringing long-term solutions. That's environmental work requires long-term solutions in which the cooperation, developing mechanisms of cooperation can actually feed into political cooperation. Such a case, for example, happened between Peru and Ecuador where environmental cooperation was so successful. It's not easy, it's never easy, but it worked and it led to political cooperation that actually managed to end a very volatile and violent conflict between Ecuador and Peru. And did it, did it happen when it got to a, a very extreme crisis? Yeah, well, it was a process that when it went through waves, it's always waves, even here. People always ask me about my work and I think you were about to ask me about the waves of the peace work. So also in that case, it goes through waves, but there was a very violent conflict and crisis, but it was a gradual. It didn't end suddenly. It ended with time and through the cooperation because the environmental peace work both requires long-term solutions, but it also requires collaboration on the different levels of society. So it requires the grassroots, the communities, people to be involved, to get to know each other, to learn to manage the resources, to take responsibility over them and just to, on a very daily life manner, it requires the middle range leadership, so municipalities, regional councils, and it requires the top leadership, the governments, to talk to each other and to reach environmental agreements. So part of the work I do today is on all of these different levels with the organizations that I'm part of. So I was mentioning we're a movement. This is kind of the, es the essence of why this work is happening. And together we work with thousands of Palestinians, Jordanians and Israelis. The basic elements of life are showing us the, the most simple uh, and long forgotten truth of our, the oneness of our existence, how we are all fully dependent on each other, how we're all part of the same network of life. This network of life is one. That's a beautiful way to put it. And yes, like we work on the basic and we also work on where, where it's much more, like where we can actually flourish through it. But what's amazing that when we look at the environmental, if we study an ecosystem, we learn very fast about the essence of cooperation. Because, you know, there's two schools of thoughts of mimicking or learning environmental systems. One says the strong, the, the survival of the fittest. And the other, and that led a lot of people to war to racism and to different ways of valuing human life. Yeah. And the other school of thought looks, the essence of nature is cooperation. And an ecosystem will not work between without that. And the more complex those cooperation and net networks are, the more stable mm -hmm. and the more adaptable to changes an ecosystem is. And what you said is kind of obvious, but not. Like I work with very, um, I work with all different types of society. I work with very mainstream cultures in which if I tell them, you know, we're here to experience our oneness, they will look at me in a very interesting way. They would not connect to those kind of, to that kind of language. Yes. So what we try to create or what I try to create in my work are the spaces for these transformational experiences. Because like everything, it's not something we can experience through the mind. Mm -hmm. I can't tell somebody, hey, 
observe an ecosystem and see the oneness and understand that we are the same as human beings and we have to live through that truth. We have to go through it in an experiential way. So that's what we try to create, is such experiences that are transformational, that we go through that change in our own being, mm -hmm. and more than a change, that it creates a commitment thereafter in our daily life to this work of both tolerance, environmental cooperation, ability to hear people with ideas and opinions different than our own, and to mainly create an inner space that can handle the complexity of this land and the times we're living in, mm -hmm. but not be paralyzed by the complexity, but actually moved into action. Yeah. Because it's, it's as you said, it's a beautiful idea, but it's, uh, then it, it brings the questions, then, okay, then how do we manifest it? How do we live in a way that actually shows that we really, really understand it? that we really, really acknowledge and that we really remember that. Yeah, and what does that look like in the daily life? Yeah. It's interesting also to hear from you how actually your spiritual work is um, backing you up and allowing you to uh, actually keep doing this um, ongoing work when you are in the front line. Um, so maybe you can tell more about a little more about this journey of yours and where did that start? And how, how does it uh, keep feeding you as a, a peace worker? So for me, since I was a kid, I had a notion that there's something bigger than us. When I was a kid, I grew up in a traditional family, Jewish traditional family. So definitely for a long time, that was God, the Jewish God. And through time, it became really the outdoors. I always sensed a relationship with the outdoors, with nature in a very special way that I never tried to articulate. I remember just saying that was like my therapy. That was my, my place where I felt wholeness. And where did you grow up? I'm just trying to imagine the landscapes. Omer. Like I, I came to Israel and I was six. Through, I was born in the States, through Singapore, came to Israel. But that landscape of which I grew up was uh, the Negev, uh, these very gentle and soft desert hills that sometimes are barn completely barren yellow, and sometimes are a little bit green. And I remember since the fourth or third grade, going outside with my friends, and I had a little hill that I called it my little God hill, Givata Elohim Shili, and I would go and sit there on my own <laughs> to just spend time. Sounds like your first vision quests. Like all Israelis after the army, I went to India. I wasn't planning on it. I wasn't open or seeking any spiritual path through humans. The issue was I could connect to nature or to something deeper through nature. I didn't find it through the human world. But something in India happened where I learned something just changed. And for the first time, I met the essence of grace and devotion through the Hindu culture that I was very much welcomed into. And it was the first time I saw that connection through to divinity through people and it changed my way of seeing things and it changed my openness 
And since I was a kid also, I had um, um, an affinity and attraction to Native American tribes, just like that, since I was learning about them since I was like eight or nine or 10, since eighth grade, since second grade, actually eight years old. And my father, who lived in the States, and I, he went back to the States when I was 14, he used to take me to Native American reservations because he knew I liked them. And it was these initial affinity that you can't explain. It was just there. And then when I was uh, 20-something, um, I met Arkan, who's uh, an indigenous medicine man, an indigenous Peruvian who was adopted in the ways of the Lakota. And something just made sense, and I started coming uh, into these ways through um, a community, a ceremonial community in New Mexico. And when we say ceremony, it's important to say that the Lakota ways, now there's a lot of confusion. We're not talking about medicine of South America, of the cactus medicine. We're talking about uh, times for unmediated experiences between people and creation without any help of any substance, the opposite in the most uh, clean way, just us and creation. So I just don't want to confuse because I know these days there's many, many circles and when people hear healing or medicine men, they think immediately about um, substances that might be mind-altering, etc. We're not talking about that. We're talking e even about the opposite. When you say the opposite, it's even fasting is part of the really minimizing the... the The, the input. Yes. Yeah. And the connection to the material realm. Yeah. And what happened in my, these ways just became home to me in a very simple way because of the unmediated part, because of, I, I come from a very, I love the, the Jewish tradition and the learnings, and I'm a very mind focused person. And in the past, I used to dream to just devote time for learning the Jewish scripts, for example. I love it. But I realized that so much of the Western culture that I was born into it goes through the mind that something about these ways where there was no teachings, there were no books, nothing to read. You ask a question, a person will tell you, go and ask when you're alone on the hill. You want to know what the North stands for? Go and ask. There's no shortcuts in a way. You, it has to go through you. And something about that felt very complementary to my very mind, fast kind of being. What is it that you see there? Like, what is it that... that um kept you on the path and what is it and and what is the kind of work that your friends are doing wow that's a very interesting question well like you said my friends or my network are really doing absolutely all the different parts many turned into the work of healing and spiritual work knowing that you know from the statement that if we want to change the world once we have to change our own patterns and oneself's world And if we can create an environment of peace in ourselves, that's the biggest contribution to peace world, to peace work. Um, and also those who see the world of personal healing as one person at a time versus understanding that a mass, massive change of consciousness cannot come in a shallow way, but it needs the, the depth. Um, so, and many of my friends are actually, I still work with a lot of my friends from those times. And I don't know, for me, I see eco me as part of uh, one part in the whole puzzle of my personal being or journey um, that I had to go through. And it's all connected still to this work. And I kept, for me, they both, these levels of the spiritual, the practical, they all feed into each other. So 
the reason that I can do my work in a very, we would say, practical level or working with different parts of society is because it's fully aligned with my prayer, but because I took time to understand what is my prayer and how can I walk it. So without the spiritual work that I'm doing, which for me is very much connected, it's really the, the indigenous ways of the Lakota, which became a home to my own development. Without those, I wouldn't be able to hold the practical work that I do in a good way. It would be too tiring, too sad, too frustrating. So it's the combination of these two worlds in me that allow me to continue doing this work on, on so many different levels. So um, I wanted to meet you today as a part of the, you know, the preparation for the 40 days journey, which, inshallah, will be also at some point create a platform for people from the Middle East to meet in a different way. So as a, you know, a, a peace activist, and we do it in different ways, um, I thought it would be best to speak with you and to have a kind of perspective on um, the work of peace workers in the region through your personal story. I grew up in a very patriotic community. Omer is a very elitistic, uh, very strongly supporting the mainstream narrative that most Israelis grow up in, that it's that I'm going to do everything to serve my country. And I was willing to give my life for that when I entered the army. And I went through a gradual process of agreeing to question everything I knew. But it just happened. Okay, it wasn't on purpose. At the end of my army service, I started realizing that I just don't know enough about the uniform, about the government that I was serving while wearing this uniform and representing. And it was a gradual process of just asking questions and not being afraid, because it's, it's a very shaking process to doubt your own identity, your own national narrative, etc. And it happened through a way where I was marking hiking trails after my army service, and I was um, marking hiking trails in the desert. And in this time, and I was 21, and I started to encounter, that's when I encountered Palestinians for the first time in my life, through meetings in the desert, and a very specific meeting where I had to choose between trust and fear, where I met eight Palestinian Bedouins in the desert. And for the first moment, we say in Hebrew, my heart dropped to my underwears, and I was like, this is a scenario that you grow up to fear in Israel, that you're alone, of course, as a woman, but as in a, a Jewish Israeli, anything could happen. But I knew in that moment that I have to choose. I knew it between trust or fear. And they were sitting, sitting over lunch. They just slaughtered a chicken for a certain celebration. And they invited me to join. And I decided to join. And that moment of decision that I can't explain on a conscious level, I think that changed my life to understand this choice, constant choice between fear and trust. It's really interesting, those, those moments in our life story when something shifts. And uh, how often also there are moments of confusion, moments of sometimes great fear or great pain, where we actually, as you said, we have a choice. And then when we allow the soul to kick in, <laughs> when we allow the soul to come in with the answer, then sometimes it shifts, as you describe, a path that was 
more governed by the mind and the and the traditional uh, environment um so can we go back to this um you uh, marking the trails in in the desert what was the work like it was my favorite work ever <laughs> <laughs> it was just we were a team so i was at the time i was the only woman on the team and we would just take um a, a little We would carry by hand a little um, a container with colors, brushes, and we would just go and mark these little in Israel. They're marked by white, blue, white stripes or red or green or black in the middle. And we would just go and do our work either alone or in couples, like two people at a time. And I would insist a lot. I loved walking alone. And my team was always kind of hesitant as a woman. So I also had to carry a tiny gun. actually, because <laughs> we're also marking in, in areas that were also West Bank territory at times. So that's what the, the days would look like, just time outside alone, walking and marking, walking and marking. And what was special about this time, it was the first time I encountered Palestinians. And at the same time, on my team, I met for the first time Jewish settlers. I had a couple of Jewish settlers who come from a very radical, earth-loving uh, part of the Settlers called Nareagvot. In English, the hilltop youth. And through them, I started also, I realized that at a certain moment, I realized I know nothing about the people of this land, not of the state of the country of Israel, but the land itself. And in these experiences, I was just traveling everywhere. I started doing holidays and celebrations with the Jewish settlements, going to see the settlements, experiencing their life. And at the same time, I would visit Palestinian communities. Because I felt I need to understand through my eyes and through my feet the stories of this land. So this was also the moment that I, for the first time, I really fell in love with this land, especially in the desert. Because until then, I wasn't born here. I never felt strong roots to the region. My mother is Syrian. My father is American, not even Jewish. He converted. And I always felt I'm a world citizen that could live anywhere. But in these experiences in the desert, I started understanding the magic of this land. And do, do you remember going back to this one very uh, dramatic um, turning <laughs> turning of the story? So um, do you remember how it was then? So can you really go back, like slow down the experience of what happens when one changes from a state of fear into a state of trust and communion? With other people that until that moment were uh, marked as the dangerous other on one level miracles happen like it's a space where miracles can happen now the way I am I constantly think of who's going to be listening to us and how they're going to categorize what you and I Sarit, are talking about they're the very logical mind people who say mm, this belongs to a spiritual wishwashy hippie talk and others who would say, and I'm trying to speak in a language where people can connect to on different levels. So I can say these are spaces for miracles. And also these are spaces where when we allow the unknown to work with us, there's an opportunity. So I could just, yeah. But if, if you forget about <laughs> who is going to listen, yeah. can you remember, you know, the sensory experience of those moments 
it's hard. The moments were of expansion. I remember, you know, first of all, I was much younger and I, I didn't articulate what I was going through. It just kind of happened. And that's part of the beauty of it. But now if I try to go back to what I was feeling in these moments, especially the moment where I chose to, sat, to sit down with a group of eight men and not walk away, I remember an excitement. Like my whole body was very alert on one because the fear was still present, but there was excitement, but not a funny, like not a um, childish excitement, but this excitement that I think I knew I was inviting a change into my being. So what I, what I experienced was an expansion, a just enlargement of my whole being into something kind of leaning in into the trust. So it was actually very restful as well. It's a very restful point when I now describe it back, leaning into such choosing trust is, um, is a very special, spacious experience. <laughs> yes. So that's what I can capture. Mm. And it gave my body new information, my body, my psyche, my mind, that this is possible. And when I know it's possible, I have, I create the pathways to choose it more often, yes. which is always the hardest work on a daily basis. But, you know, once we create those pathways, then it's, they're easier to come back to. Yeah. You had a full experience of what it is. You had, you had a moment of peace. What I hear in your story that if I can say that since then, in a way, you are working towards creating those moments again and again, both for yourselves and then when you mature and you become, you know, a leader, then you want to create these spaces for others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> quite a, a very interesting and precise way to put it. It's knowing that, that it is possible. The crazy thing is, you know, there's so many conditions that have to be there in the right time and the right moment for such moments and experiences to happen. And then trying to recreate them is, is art. Like it's, a, it's really a form of art to try and it's art and it's trust that it's not up to me. Like it wasn't up to me. I didn't choose. I did and I didn't. It kind of happened, but I was in a certain readiness to meet that point. But there comes back the anchor into the spiritual work that without trust in something bigger than me, in these crazy times when we look around and everywhere we see is degradation, devastation, or on an environmental level, with, without this anchor in something bigger, I wouldn't be able to continue And also, and the same trust is into the soul, the journey of each and every soul of us as human beings, trusting the journey of the soul that there are certain moments where transformation can happen and that we actually make choices, whether we're conscious of it or not, on our path. So also in this way, it gives me also a very light touch as a person leading these pathways or creating them, that nothing is forceful. For example, the people I work with, I never... I always have to create a very gentle balance between experiences that push people out of their comfort zone in a way where we can grow, but also not too far out of their comfort zone because I also worked in that realm and then we just recreate trauma mm -hmm. and I'm not interested. And I've done, I've been in experiences where, especially through movement, that happens unconsciously yes. where we 
to step out and we re-trigger shock and trauma and we go way too far out from what we can integrate back. So a lot of the work is to find that gentle line of how do we grow and grow through meeting our edges, but to constantly stay in in touch with our center. Yeah. That's the work. One of the visions I was holding, or I would say, came to me when I was 21. Um, I was traveling in India, and I encountered, during the World Social Forum in Mumbai, I encountered the, uh, for the first time the movement and the organization of the Eco Villages Network. And it was a very specific moment that I suddenly realized that what I'm supposed to do at that time in my life, is create a Palestinian-Israeli international eco-village. And since that moment, I was traveling and volunteering and working in different places around the world with the intention of learning how can that happen. And along that journey, that was the vision or the idea that led me to come back to this land of the Middle East and to the Aravai Institute. And that was the dream that led me, actually, everywhere. That was my application, was that I want to start an eco-village that is an international space for environmental and personal work, for peace work. And throughout the time, uh, walking around with this dream, I met the right people. And Ilana was one of the people I met as through our Arava alumni connection. Ilana is Ilana Mualem, a very beautiful lightful being that was a magnet, a magnet to Ecobee, a magnet to this work, and a walking for many, many people. um, Ilana was this, and still is, I have to say, a walking example of of these bringing together of the Palestinian-Israeli, the work of conflict with inner movement and the environmental love and passion. And, And with time, we we decided that we just need to go for this dream because I was part of different movements, including the Peace Research Village of Tamera and part of that core group. And I was just uh, younger and really wanted things to happen and move. So we joined forces, especially Lana and I, and with our partners and with time to manifest such a physical space on the land in the north of the Dead Sea. When we created Ecobi, it was this it was like a strong release of energy that just needed to happen. Very special that we decided on a day. We decided on the 15th of December, 2011, we're going to be on the land and create this project. So I, I'm understanding that that was meant to happen in this surge of energy that allowed the creation of Ecomi and not waiting for the perfect scenario or a better scenario of finding the right land that wasn't settler, owned by a settler, etc. That was the uniqueness of Ecomi and also part of its uh, default of faults and part of why it didn't continue past as a physical space past eight years. Yeah. Can you remind us what was also 
politically what was going on there? Do you remember? Politically, it was, um, it was just the beginning of the trends of war with Gaza, which had a very big impact. Um, it was just warming up um, mm-hmm. to that situation. And the first big war was out in 2012-13. Um, so it was a time in which both there was a lot of space. The feeling on the ground was that there was space to dream. There was people acknowledging the failure of the different accords of the Oslo Agreement of different other Camp David. Everybody was already acknowledging those as failures. And there was a lot of, already a mix of despair in the field, but also people looking for a new way. So I did feel a wave of energy of people finding, understanding that there's a certain um, vacuum, yeah. an empty space that needs to be filled. Um, but at the same time, as the situation with Gaza escalated every, almost every single year, Uh, a lot of cynicism and skepticism returned into the field. Now, when we're saying the field, of course, there's always the grassroots level and the policy or top leadership level, what people see in the media or in the news. And uh, the grassroots movement was very different. Like it was, it was a time where I, I could still feel a lot of hope, a lot of hope in practical ways for bringing and taking, bringing, I would say, peace through taking responsibility over our own actions, relationships, and again, activism. With a combination of people just wanting to live their life in a good and simple way and finding that as also not in contradiction. I think what happened, Ecomi, was in a way it was one manifestation to many Of many people were dreaming this place. And when we started it, what was amazing is that we discovered what a need. We were just tapping into a need that was there. In two months, we had over 2,000 people come through Ecomi and astonished that there is a place where they can just meet and encounter people on so many different levels of our being. And it was part of a wider movement or attempt that many of us were connected to. But in a way, Ikumi was trying to mature. In order to mature, it needed a different land, a land that could be a better home. This land was, from the beginning, was a temporary space. We were there on the junction, living in tents, in a very noisy and kind of unprotected space, both energetically and physically. And with time, it, it asked for something else. It asked for a mat- maturation into a, a ground where it could be, become a physical space. Uh, build space and we we didn't manage the different generations of ikumi together we we didn't manage to find that space and the, the ikumi community still lives as a as a community uh, in communication doing trainings together doing activities so i think in that in that sense it that community is still alive and that community is still seeking a physical home if you ask for the deeper levels i think in a way we also try to create something that wasn't that is a bit premature. There's a certain, certain readiness that each of us, our communities, meaning the Palestinian, the Israeli, there's work that we have to do separately in order to be able to meet and not necessarily an equal footing, but the gaps between our communities were so big and that was very clear 
and Ikomi, for example. For Israelis, it could be very cool to live in very simple conditions. Ikomi was held as a Sinai style with mattresses on the floor and these kind of chusha styles and, and temporary tents. For Palestinians, that's um, not very common or not a respectful way to host people or to live. So that was a, a strong dissonance between the different cultures. And that was part of the need to find a more a ground or to create a building and a space that looks and is more professional and accommodates the both cultures. And I do feel there's just different gaps between us that the readiness of living together in such intensity that we were just not ready for. So Ekumi ended at 2000 and? Technically 18. 2018. As a physical space. Yes, yes. So the, the place... Uh, just didn't function anymore because of many complications. Yeah. One of them, as you said, was because it was a land uh, that belonged, a property of a settler, so there is a, a limit to what it could actually manifest. Yeah, but the main reason was actually a violation of uh, physical safety to one of, our, of the people who were at the time of the core leaders holding Ikomi. So the place was not safe at a certain point. And that was the main wow. the main reason for understanding that it's time to change. To move on. Yeah. Yeah. What happened then in the years after Ekomi, also for you in your personal journey? So I physically left or stopped living at Ekomi when I had my firstborn child. So it was much before, it was around 2012 or 13. Mm -hmm. And I kept supporting it from afar. But that was also the lack of sustainability of Ekomi that most of the people who held and led the project didn't live there for more than two, maximum three seasons because it was so, so intense. Um, after Ikomi, like when we left that area, we moved to Sakhnin. And Sakhnin is? Uh, an Arab town in the north of Israel, which is populated by Muslim and Christian Arabs. And for a while, we were there for six months. We were the only Jewish family in, in the town, in the city. And I did it as part of an uh, internship of my master's program. And it was a life-changing experience to be a, a Jewish, we would say, minority living in an Arab town in Israel. So it also changed my perspective about piecework, which is uh, very important for me that I realized I knew this, but I experienced it again and again, how the Palestinians living in Israel, so Palestinians of 1948, some would call themselves Arab, Arab Israeli, Palestinian Israeli, each person has their own Uh, way they feel comfortable describing their identity. So it brought back the attention that they are crucial as a bridge for peace with Palestinians. So the work in Sakhnin also brought me back to a place that Ikumi will be sustainable or more sustainable once there is a very strong presence of Palestinian Israelis. That in a way this is where the gaps are also, they're not as big as a culture even if we look at culture and the way we're identified with Western culture or not, the gaps are much bigger with Palestinians. And there's 
a crucial ro role there for Palestinian and Israelis to play yeah. as leaders also of environmental and social change through the religions and through a language that I could never reach because it's theirs. So what is it that makes them the best possible bridge um, between the Israelis and Palestinians? The main thing that makes them a good bridge is the fact that they also carry both cultures. They know both cultures within and without. That's number one. Number two is the language, of which is mm, the importance of it could never be underestimated. The fact that most people here, Jewish Israelis, do not speak Arabic is a serious barrier to cooperation with Palestinians, as simple as that. Right. And the third is that Palestinian Israelis, even though they have, the, from my encounters, the, the identity is a sensitive and complex issue, the, the inner space they have and the interest they also have in bringing the people together from, is, a, is a big hope they have for Palestinians, for the ones I work with, yeah? Because mm -hmm. it's like bringing two parts of them together. So the work with Palestinians and Israelis could be done in a way that they can hold it like no one else that I've met. Right. And again, it's an interest because a lot of the Palestinian Israelis I meet have very clear Palestinian identity and families in the West Bank or Gaza, and they really care for their well-being. And they live here. So it's also looking similarly to how in the past, I believe that Jews coming from the Arab countries like my mother should have been worked with as bridges to Palestinians because they speak the language, they know the culture, they know the religion. So it's in a similar way. Is looking, being the bridge is a very important task and yeah. requires a certain personality too. So that's a bit of why, why I see or where the potential is for, for the importance of this role. Although with our um, parents or, you know, the generations who came from the Arab countries, Jews who came from the Arab countries, well, we know that the history of Israel was not one that really encouraged, actually, and, and used wisely, you know, this cultural background. But that's, a whole, that's a whole other, yeah. <laughs> a whole that's other a serious issue. wound for many of the... Jewish right. people, Israelis coming from Arab descent, but that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Right. It seemed like um, a lot of those people that we were talking about, a lot of the peace workers, some of them have experienced some kind of either burnt out, burnout or um, despair um, because of their own management of their own energy, but also, I would say, because of the external situation, which seems like it's not progressing anywhere near our dreams on some levels. Um, maybe you can talk to me a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a very common and known trend in the world of activism in all kinds of social, environmental, political activism is the burnt out phenomena and the lack of ability to sustainably manage our own lives. And the way I see it, a lot of what determines that burnout or not is what, what drives us into action. 
meaning what is our motivation for change? Because when I was younger, in, uh, as an environmental activist and a person who fell in love with nature when I was 16, knowing that I'm going to devote my life to protecting nature, for f some years I worked from anger. Anger was feeding my work. And that's what a lot of us activists still work from. The anger and this deep knowing that things can be different, but also being very angry and disappointment that they're not. And I found that anger is an energy by itself that is mechale, it, it burns you out, itself, it eats you up. And that's why I started encountering the need for the personal work. And many activists are aware of that, that when you reach those levels, if, you, if I'm not dealing with the essence of anger in my own being, I can't be a peace worker the way I see it. I can't call myself a peace worker. And so where I see burnout is where we, it's just about reflecting on what is our motivation and seeing also if I'm doing something because I'm angry at a system that needs to change or because of fear, then I, something's not accurate. Because for me, I do this work because it brings me joy. And there is a statement, one of a quote that I can't remember right now, but what the world needs Ilana loves, our friend Ilana loves this quote that what the world needs is more people who do what brings them alive, what makes them feel alive. And in a sense, we don't need more suffering. So if our activism causes us suffering, there is no point. So it's finding this gentle resonance between what we're called to do, what the world needs, and what brings us joy. Without that combination, there is, we're adding more fuel to the same fire in a way. We're just adding more unhealth to a system that is already unhealthy. So for me, that shift between being an angry and uh, I would say like a more radical activist to understanding that I want to I wanna do it from a place of, of joy and hope and see the little, little changes as part of the big picture. Um, to, do, to do that shift, I had to go through the inner patterns and looking at them and doing the hard work, which is not fun, seeing all of the less beautiful or more shadow parts, some would say, of our own being and identifying them and then re-choosing my work as an activism and reframing it. Mm -hmm. And I have a long way to learn about self-sustainability. And you know, a lot of us who share like the burden on our shoulders and there's so much to be done, et cetera, et cetera. But again, when we're quiet, And we really have, we see that we have the ability to do this work through a balance mm -hmm. between what is needed and what we can really do with keeping that balance of health. So I go back to that point that it's the self-work that I also, it's part of why I need community, either of active, like community to help me with the, the world of feedback, to give me mirrors when I'm, when I'm off track and, um, And this unmediated relationship that I have created with creation that allows me to rest in it and know that I really see the earth as its own being. I see the water as its own being. And the earth will decide in a way we're going to come and go. She's going to be here. This balance between we are just a particle of sand to the part of we are a whole world. But that unique balance of just listening and resting there that I do believe she is a conscious being and, and what's happening now is in a way meant to happen. I still know how to move to action because I'm listening. 
And if I listen and I hear something different, I will change course. Mm -hmm. But I need to make space in my life to keep listening to what is to my own personal guidance and to follow that. So I can, if I'm too busy with my mind and my overworked patterns, I won't be able to listen. So I'm, I'm, I'm constantly playing with that balance every day. And that's one of the biggest challenges as a, as a peace worker and an activist. And a mother. And a mother of two. Who needs to go now to the airport. <laughs> again at uh, Rina's house in Kibbutz Lotan after a weekend in which, Rina, where have you been? I was in Cyprus in a professional forum of environmental change makers from Jordan, Egypt, Palestine, Israel, and one Iraqi Wow. And we were joining together for an advocacy training, so how to work on environmental and social causes, but also through policymaking and lobbying and decision-making. And it was just a very, very profound and beautiful group and experience. So I'm coming from there. Wonderful. And I was uh, just not too far from here this weekend in Tsukim, at Leva Midbar, which is the place where I do most of my trainings in Israel. And there was a, a weekend for teachers, Kundalini Yoga teachers, and the theme was presence. So it was a, a beautiful group of women, actually. And, and here we are again, present with each other. Um, Kundalini pilgrims. <laughs> yeah. It's a good movement of doing our thing and coming back together. And like we constantly explore, seeing how they're so relevant, our different trails of work, and to see how they keep meeting and feeding each other. That's very interesting to me. Yeah, exactly. Because this is the kind of uh, meeting or the, the kind of combination that is very much needed, um, I feel, also in my field, um, the field of the work of con on consciousness, in, in my case, in, with, through Kundalini Yoga. And uh, there's really, I feel like it's time to become activist <laughs> in a different way, yeah? So finding a way, what, what is activism for me and for us, those who are working in the field of inner peace and then uh, working on our presence to become such that accelerates the process. But then uh, what would it mean? What our activism look like? And that's why the 40 days in the desert is part of that. They wish to bring that, like a spiritual activism. As a trend, I still feel the lack of, of peace workers or activists. If we're speaking about spiritual activism, I do see the, um, 
The part that would be suffering time-wise would be the personal practice that can balance true peace work. When I say that, I mean, as an activist or a peace worker, whatever I do, if it is nourished from the inner space, and what I mean is that if I am standing or in a hard conversation like I had this morning or different events during the weekend, and I can control my reaction and I have the tools to observe what's happening in my own body and my own psyche and emotional world to what's happening when I'm hearing things that are different for me to listen to or that are very different than my world perception, then my work as a peace worker is way more effective. And that's why, you know, when people ask me, part of your, a lot of young people ask me, like, what do you recommend on my, I want to be a peace worker, environmental peace worker, what do you recommend? So one of the things I recommend is developing a practice for personal sanity, yes. <laughs> balance and work, which the Kundalini pilgrim, the Kundalini yoga as a whole is one of these realms. Yeah, the, the f we, you know, in Kundalini yoga, it's called sadhana. In yoga in general, sadhana means daily spiritual practice, which is the foundation. Foundation for, as you say, for our well-being personally, but then looking at those who have the wish to really have an impact in the world, a direct impact, and being involved in the world, then for sure sadhana needs to be very effective. Um, and it needs to have to be very effective in a in a very short time, right? That's also the trick. We don't have much time, exactly. like the yogis in old times. We don't, we can't practice for hours and hours. And that that was the vision uh, of Yogi Bhajan, bringing the tools of Kundalini Yoga to the West, knowing that these are the most effective, fast tools. Uh, in yoga, bringing that to the West, to the people who don't have much time, uh, <laughs> but have uh, uh, huge, uh, you know, needs. Needs, yeah. Um, also living in very stressful environments. So, sadhana, yes. Next time you meet them, <laughs> tell them it's called sadhana. Sadhana. Yeah, well, then it brings up a question for me to you about how do you translate that and explain that eventually it just improves the effectiveness because part of the story that us as activists are caught up in is the issue of time. Right. And, you know, being too... This I still witness. I don't see major shifts of awareness towards... Because I'm speaking about myself. I'm, that's one of the hardest, the biggest challenges for me is to shift my own conversation with time. Right. And to understand that I have to take that time in order to improve my effectiveness is one of the biggest shifts, I think, for peace workers and activists. Right. So this is what Yogi Bhajan called be ahead of time. Okay. Yeah. And one, <laughs> one of the things about being ahead of time is also, you know, in general about what's, what's coming, the shift that we're all facing. But be ahead of time also, um, take the time to do the inner work so then when you meet the pressure of time in your daily life, you're ahead. 
And when you say your head, it means that I'm in my center, that I'm in control of the situation, meaning it's not just happening to me, it's I have the space to... Yeah, exactly. What do you mean by being ahead of time? Yeah, we can, you know, that's a very interesting. We can see it in different ways. Being ahead of time, uh, you know, as Kundalini yogis, we can start with a very basic thing, is waking up very early in the morning and doing your practice before sunrise. So you're ahead of time on the level of uh, before the whole world is awake and before you're needed um, to whatever your commitments yeah, are. Before I need to attend my children and make sandwiches and yes. get them dressed. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you're ahead of, of time in that sense. Um, but you're also you're ahead of time because when you're deeply connected to your core self, which is beyond time, which is infinite, then you are ahead of time. And the more you're present in your core self, the more you come from there, the more you are that and you remember that, then you are ahead of time because you are timeless. So, in essence, that's what it is. Yeah. And, it's, you know, it's interesting because I, uh, I heard a, a beautiful, um, beautiful sentence by the late Irish poet John O'Donoghue, who said, so the, the way he framed it was, stress is a twisted relationship with time. Yeah. That's a very good way to put it. It is, huh? It's a beautiful way to put very. it. So then how do we create a lifestyle that makes us be ahead of time? Yeah. And this, for me, this very much connects to the teachings of the indigenous worlds that I'm part of, which speak in a very, very similar language even to the twisted relationship of modern human beings to time. And it's important to mention that in, if we observe the shift in activism, then we definitely have to mention the movement that started at Standing Rock mm -hmm. um, against the pipeline in the United States and North Dakota. As a for me, it's an historical shift in the world of activism. That's how I see it. That's how I speak of it. And it brought back the essence of sacred activism. Right. And I'm personally part of a whole network of people called Defend the Sacred, which are from different countries, and it's been established or held by the community of Tamera. And there we have these conversations of how to bring activism, social, environmental, political, spiritual, how to bring it to its to the place where it can be in its fullest potential by remembering what is sacred as being the path that nourishes the activism. But what does a worldwide network mm -hmm. of very strong activists and leaders look like when they hold that intention together and infuse that information back into our networks and our projects and the people we work with? So also that is a shift that I'm witnessing that is very strong. And I see more and more people seeing what you said, understanding that the relationship 
is twisted and looking for a different way. So it brings back, you know, the, the need of combining your work, my work, right. <laughs> and providing the, it's, it's way more than tools, it's ways of life that yes. can really hold these intentions together on right. a daily basis. Right. So I'm really happy that you're creating the, the 40-day journey <laughs> as, as something that can do that in my perspective. Right. Because that's the vision. You know, it has many, many levels, many layers. Uh, and the calling comes from the spirit, I find. Um, to really go back to the mythologies of the area that tell about leaders that in their making, in their journey of becoming leaders at points of crisis or points of when they were crossing thresholds themselves personally or their community was at the verge of a big uh, threshold, they went for 40 days in the desert. Mm -hmm. uh, and it feels like we all now recognize humanity is facing or not just facing, we're in it. In it. We're in a very big threshold. And I find also for me personally on my path, I'm at this threshold when I really need to redefine my way. And part of it is coming back to my friends like you, Ina, and joining forces together and uh, bringing you know, the experience you have gathered in all these years, the experience I've gathered, what happens when we are going to bring it together? Although our, the local stories, in a way, we see have created eventually now a, a reality which is very chaotic uh, and uh, very much in separation. Um, but what will happen if we really go back to the spiritual experiences of the leaders of, of the religions that were born here? Mm -hmm. Which is, for me, is fascinating because when I was a kid, you know, people ask you these questions, who are the leaders who had the most inspiring impact on your life? This is a question you meet a lot in conversations and courses about leadership yeah. and for me since I'm a kid since I'm a teenager I always say Moses was one of the most impactful beings on my choices as a leader and wow. to see yeah I was very inspired by him a lot because of this uh, 40 days but not only a leader who informed my leadership very strongly prophet Moses Musa Moshe and I think I was so inspired by his what I've learned about him when I was young, we're talking about high school, yeah? Yeah. But already in high school, I could say that. Because of two things. One, I could see this very unmediated relationship with God that he had, yeah. which I found so beautiful and romantic, but beautiful. And these 40 days that he spent up on the mountain, receiving, changing, doing what he needed to do and what was needed to happen at the same time that he was up for what needed to come down. And because of he described leadership as uh, him being a hollow vessel, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a way to just... A channel. A channel. 
And the fact that also he had Aaron speak for him because he was stuttering is all exactly how it's meant to happen, which teaches us a lot also about not having one too much power with one leader. Yeah. But this humbleness that he had about understanding that he is merely a channel was my favorite. And the ability to be this channel from the divinity and from the people and to allow these to meet in him and do the best he can in his most human ways. Like we learn about the mistakes that Moses did. Like it's right. profound in, as if we look at this as leadership. Yes. So this is part of what I found. And, and that's why, you know, I dare to do it now. Because in one, on one hand, there's like 40 days in the desert. Like somebody told me, oh, so, so you are like Moses, right? <laughs> like, you know, very cynical. Yeah. But it's like, yes, we are. We are. Because all those leaders, uh, they were also very human. If we read the stories the way we usually do read the stories of the Bible, uh, you know, in, the, in, this, in Israel, in these, in these times, you know, how you grew up, how I grew up, the way we read the Bible is really also not just... Uh, reading those as um, holy texts, but really as mythologies that tell us about the journey of all humans. So um, that's why I, you know, I, I think I have a, even a chance to think about, yeah, why not go there and do it? Like like they did it or slightly different <laughs> <laughs> because they went there alone and we're going there now as a group yeah uh, and maybe that's also like you say the shift in leadership exactly. it's a critical thing that we should note here that that's part of what so many of us are speaking we're not waiting for an individual messiah or leader we're a collective being right now these days and and that field is strong Right. So the fact that you're going to be going as a group, and we say there's things to learn from the history. Like it's not a surprise that the three monotheistic religions were born in the desert. The power of the desert right. is immense. It may, and I'm saying that as a person who lives in the desert and loves it. Yeah. It just makes you encounter yourself in a different way because of the spacious, the openness, and some people would say barren. I wouldn't, but yeah, the magnitude of creation that is felt in the desert is a gift and a power. But I'm very curious because for me, what you're doing is needed in times like this. We need the people who can keep going and we need the people who stop and listen. Right. What is the dream of the land right now? Yeah. How can we be as a community vessel, even if it's a temporary community meeting for 40 days, there's things that a community can see and receive as a vision or as a knowing or as understanding that individuals would be very limited at. Yeah. So I'm very curious to see what what will come out of this collective dream that you have the opportunity and you're creating the space for it to happen. Right. Because we all need it right now. Yes. Yeah. We all do. What I'm also curious about is would be the combination of people who, on your journey on the 40 Days Pilgrim, people who've been from this land, who grew up here, Right. And people who are coming out of this land. Right. That's another perspective that, personally, in my piece work, I'm very, very um, 
I feel very strong about that it's needed. Right. Having the people that have all the, sometimes, not always, depends how much work we do, but a lot of identification with the narratives of this land and emotional patterning that we grew up with through this land and people who come from different contexts. And this dialogue between these two experiences is crucial to allow new things to come in a way, especially in this global world we're living in where there is already so much exchange this would be very, very important. And I think that's a beautiful and crucial component. Right. And it is happening. And um, yeah, I'm very, very happy about it. been experiencing as activists a, a kind of dissemination of the left-wing movement in Israel and that with all the political map there's kind of a falling apart of what used to be here and what is now. So I see a lot of activists looking for new homes, new ways to bring about their thoughts, ideas, passions. And I see some leaving the area understanding that it can't happen here or they can be more effective from out of the region. And I see people, as I said, very wise people and wise because they listen to their mind and their heart that are stepping into the main mainstream system yeah. and influencing policy and public opinion in Israel. So I'm seeing both. And yes. you can see that in movements that are happening right now here. Yeah, I think you can see it in any field. Also, you know, with the... Uh, in the spiritual teachings and how they are becoming also a part of the system. So something that I've seen happening in the past few years is, um, and maybe you can actually put the point on when the no normalization and the BDS came into the picture and what that has done to uh, peace work in the area. And maybe you can also help me remember when, when was that? When was the, the, sh the transition? When did it start happening? Or the, these voices of no normalization. Maybe you can also explain a bit about it. Yeah. The exact dates of when it grew, it's hard to say because the nor normalization was a gradual movement, but it was there for a long time, I think since the second intifada. Um, Which is what year? 2000. Mm -hmm. um, but anti-normalization means not to normalize, that if we meet as Palestinians, if we meet and speak with Israelis in a normal way, it's strengthens the status quo. It creates an illusion that we accept the reality as it is and that we make the current situation normal. That's why it's called that anti-normalization is not to do that so nobody falls under the impression that this situation is acceptable. Mm -hmm. So that's the essence of what it is from my knowledge. Right. And then certain meetings and encounters with Israelis will be okay, especially those who have a direct uh, 
political, for example, um, goal of ending the occupation or changing something within the political map. So that's... Uh, and I remember these voices from many, many years, but they grew... In the last 10 years, they definitely have been growing, uh, both in Jordan and Palestine. So since around 2010... That's when I've been feeling it like it's always, it's yes. been around. Yeah. But it's, and it's like every other thing, it's in this growing, it's in these waves. Whenever it depends on the leader within the Palestinian community, the words that are used, the both the religious leaders and political leaders and what instructions in a way they would give to the community. So it has a lot of, it's, it has its own life, which should be studied. Right. <laughs> you know? and, and also, yeah, also, Palestinian, uh, Palestinians who are not in Palestine, Palestine, um, refugees who are in other countries, uh, Palestinians who are in Europe or the U.S. Uh, and their attempts to make a change from afar. I think that is also uh, made a difference. They are also uh, meaningful players. Yeah. In the field. Especially for the BDS, but also yes. like more of the anti-normalization voices that I work with are actually from this land. But yes, there's a whole, it's a whole field that is created that is very strong. And how does it affect your work or how is it affected? Because uh seems like although this is um very present... Uh, and I, I find also, you know, from the example from the yoga world, that even my friends, sisters, brothers, yogis in the Middle East are finding it difficult to work with us Israelis. Um, so I wonder how it affected your field and um, how how do you still, you know, find it possible to do make some some areas normal, although it is an, not a normal situation. First, I fully understand the anti-normalization movement. Right. Um, it's completely understandable. And I mm -hmm. think I relate to it in the fact that all of us are living in a certain status quo that we accept both socially, environmentally, economically. And this notion of not forgetting, not suddenly becoming comfortable in that status quo is, is important because that's what we tend to do as people. Yeah. We want to survive or thrive, but we tend to do the best we can with what we have and then we can easily forget. Um, so it's been affecting our work a lot, but I'm the type of person when there's a challenge, we meet it and we continue working. So I can't elaborate too much on it, but say that we continue working regardless uh, with those movements. We hear they're very brave individuals that decide that they don't care what people say about them as working with us um, and people who do and bring that. For me, what I've learned is always bringing these hard topics, putting them on the table is where people feel more comfortable to be there. So this is a hard one, but we speak about it. And I always, for me, it's mainly to observe the inner conversation within the Palestinian community yeah. of those who are believe in the anti-normalization movement and those who, not, who don't. 
So I, I very, I'm very respectful of the inner dialogue and I mainly observe, so I don't have much of an opinion. Yeah. I just listen to my colleagues and friends speak about it and learn. And they are the ones who will dictate how our projects need to change accordingly. So if there's suddenly a strong wave, they will say, okay, now we go, we're going to be more quiet. We're not going to publish anything. We're going to keep it more under, under the radar. The table. Yeah. And then when they feel comfortable, so it's always up to the Palestinian partners I work with and Jordanian yeah. to, to work with it and decide our, our pace according to these, to these energies. Yeah. Yes, because it is very challenging. How do you create a, a non-violent protest? What are the means for a non-violent protest? And, and this is one of them. to say I've ne- I will never desert the dream or the vision of having such a community like Ecomi. So Ecomi eventually became a center, like it was more sustainable as a center, holding retreats and events yeah. rather than an ongoing community. And that dream will still be there. And I know it's a dream that many, many people share to have this physical space of the sharing the daily life together. So I'm sure at some point it will come back But like any good project, it needs a father and a mother or just a caretaker. Yeah. Uh, so whenever those factors will come together, good caretakers that take this as their main mission and responsibility like we did and many of the holders of Ecomi did at the time, together with this readiness, I'm sure it will come back. That's my feeling. I can't generalize beyond my... Gen- like my age, uh, generation, or people that have started in this way. So definitely there's been a serious dropout throughout the years of people who, like you mentioned, understood that these ways are too challenging, like working to create a change in mass consciousness through activism on the ground is just going to take too long. And at the same time, understanding how the lack of our attention to peace work because of all the time spent outside is not contributing to peace work. So a lot of those people focused on similar avenues on finding the practices that enrich their own ability to be in peace. So I've been witnessing both. And at the same time, I can tell you, I witnessed new generations coming up, the 20 plus, the 30, the young 30s. And what I'm seeing is fascinating. I see on one hand people who have very practical, business-oriented knowledge in a very young age that also understand, are not afraid to understand the political map in its decision-making level, mm-hmm. which for my, our, at our time we were mainly objectors and we were not so interested in understanding that, but in creating alternatives. So I'm meeting people who are genius in, and the rhythm of learning the systems is very, very fast. And at the same time, I'm witnessing very spiritual young beings that already, in a way, carry the fruits of what we were trying to do, but they have less work to do. So they already have been informed of the need for self-balance and the inner peace work, and they have the tools of the younger generations and all the multimedia and technology to make the messages reach further, faster, and deeper. 
So I'm, I feel like I'm in a kind of a middle place of where I'm seeing the older activists and the newer generations coming up. And I'm in the middle of the discussion between them, which for me is fascinating. This is exactly also part of this weekend where we had people in their beginning of their 20s and people in their 40s towards 50s mm-hmm. and being somewhere in the middle or, well, towards <laughs> the upper scale, we'll say. The grand perspective is quite amazing. Yeah. So before we end, maybe we'll just end the best way would be with a prayer. So maybe your prayer, share it with us. My prayer right now, first I want to give thanks to the relationships that I have that feed me in this work, the relationship to the land, the relationship to the people of this land, and the relationship that I have to something bigger. And I pray that this work, both what you're about to do, Sarit, the 40 days in the desert, and our work here, that we keep nourishing these relationships. Because for me, these relationships right now are at the heart of what I feel is asked of us, is to take good care of our relationships on all levels, with ourselves, with each other, with the land and with the spirit that is holding us. And I pray that we also create new relationships to old stories. And that a land is not only holy because of its past and its history, but that it is holy because we have a relationship with it and we care for it into the future. And I pray that our children growing up on this land in this given moment, like my two children, have the opportunities to meet the people of this land in different ways, in a ways where the hearts and the minds can be truly curious to learn and to be together and to understand how it can look like to be together and care for this land and its water, its air, its earth, its creatures in a good way. Satnam. Oh, Satnam. Oh. Amen. This podcast was recorded by Sarit Maor, Simrit. Sound engineer was Dolev Rafaeli. The beautiful music by Rafael Emanuel Ran from his mantra album, I and Higher. For information about the 40 days journey and about other events and courses, you're welcome to visit our website at kundalinipilgrim.com.